I'm Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. I'm very happy to bring Tracy and Michelle on the show today. We were at a conference yesterday that the Connecticut Association for Healthcare at Home put on for their state. It was awesome. Um, how Tracy, how do you think the, the conference went yesterday? I was so pleased with it, Kimberly. Um, this is our annual statewide hospice and palliative care summit. And we invite our hospice providers throughout Connecticut, as well as our palliative care providers, which many of them are from the hospital settings. Uh, we had over 150 people, including um, many really unique exhibitors, such as yourself. And we uh, spent the day exploring ways to improve serious illness care in Connecticut. Um, something that many people may not know is that Connecticut ranks as one of the lowest states in the country in uh, length of stay on hospice. We seem to refer people to hospice very last minute, and it uh, ends up causing quite a bit of confusion with our, with our uh, consumers of, of such services. So what we did was try to find ways that we could improve on getting people uh, services earlier in their serious illness so that they would be more aware of the choices available to them at end of life and perhaps consider hospice as a better choice than some others that are out there. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, I was, I was really thrilled. I was really captivated by the, the speakers and, um, and what they brought to the table. And so let's talk a little bit, Tracy, tell me, um, and I welcome to the show too, Michelle. I don't want to like we're, we have two people on the air today with us during the podcast. So Michelle is uh, the chair of the Hospice and Palliative Committee under the board when it comes to the Connecticut Association for Healthcare at Home. But first, before we get to Michelle, Tracy, tell me exactly about what your role is and and where do you see that expanding and how do you see it changing, has changed over the years? Um, because it's not easy to work in hospice care right now. No, it's not. Um, in any type of home-based services, it's very difficult. So uh, my name is Tracy Wodach, and I am an RN by training, and I am the Vice President of Clinical and Regulatory Services for the Connecticut Association for Healthcare at Home. We are a member organization that uh, focuses all of our support on the home health and the hospice providers in Connecticut. Uh, I've been in this role for nine and a half years, and prior to that, I was in um, clinical operations for a, one of the largest providers of home health and hospice in the state of Connecticut, and I was in that role for about 10 years prior. And so I've, I've brought to this position quite a bit of information regarding you know, my, my role is focusing on supporting our, our members for all of their clinical and regulatory needs, which, as you mentioned, uh, can be very daunting in this day and age. The federal government and the state uh, government continue to change 
Um, regulatory requirements continue to change the scrutiny with which they look at, at providers and how they give care, ensuring that they're using the government's dollars appropriately. So I'm here to really try to slice and dice all of that information um, so that our members know how to proceed um, with, with good quality, safe, and compliant care. And I have to say that the um, uptick of scrutiny by the government has, has really um, probably supported my role more than anything in the last uh, five years. It, I, I can definitely see the calls that come in, how needed a person such as uh, the role that I fill is. So it, it's been very effective, I think, for our providers in the state. Well, I do know, you know, when we had a quality, when I worked within a hospice, we had a quality person. They always counted on their state organization and they called them because you guys have like a broader view and are working with the state um, as well as helping every hospice organization, home health organization with you um, to to make sure that we are compliant. Um, because, you know, when that reimbursement is not coming in, it, it it's a game changer for sure. <laughs> um, so I know you're a busy woman. I'm sure you're probably going to you're doing the job of maybe three or four people these days. And um, it, it's and then you're you were in charge of the conference yesterday. Yes. It's probably one of my favorite days of the year. Um, don't tell anyone, but I'm I'm responsible for both the home health and the hospice providers and supporting them through education and and advocacy. But but my heart really lies with with care of uh, the end of life and and trying to help families um, experience life and death in a in a very positive way. So yesterday is it. it Every year, yesterday is is the conference that I I truly love putting on and seeing it come to fruition. And then the day of, I'm just I'm on cloud nine most of the time. And yesterday was yeah. You could tell you you're you drip the passion and you can really feel uh, the love that you have for those who are serving patients and families. And yet, the one question before we get started and go over to Michelle. Um, you know, do, are you seeing more and more patients die on home health or in home care services um, versus hospice lately? Outside of the hospice benefit, um, I have to say, you know, we, we get our annual um, data um, from a national company and the percentage of, we, we look mainly at our Medicare beneficiaries, those that are over 65, and the percentage of Medicare beneficiaries excuse me, Medicare beneficiaries who access hospice care continues to rise. Oh, good. And so we're really right about at the national average right now. Um, Connecticut is right about the national average, which is um, almost 47% of Medicare beneficiaries utilize the hospice benefit um, when when they have passed away. So um we're seeing an uptick of it, good. but 48%, 47%, that's good, but I know we could do much better. So I know that there are many of our uh, home health providers who also try to have a palliative care program um, so that they can transition people over to hospice a little bit sooner. And, you know, as we get into this conversation today, it might be a good opportunity to really talk about the differences between palliative care and hospice. Because I think our um, our communities and our 
physicians and, and many nurses don't understand at all what the differences are. So, you know, I think it's important to, um, to make sure that we're getting people over into hospice, but our, our numbers are, um, I'm, I'm rambling now. I'm sorry. That's okay. You can edit that one out. Um, I, I think that our numbers continue to grow, but we have a, a lot of opportunity to continue to um, improve further. Well, I do. I believe that. And, you know, we, we throw around words like length of stay, and I know that some of my listeners, you know, are caregivers and people going through uh, treatment and are artists. And length of stay is basically when someone comes on to the hospice benefit or into hospice and how long they stay. And what what the crazy thing is, is the hospice benefit is there's a lot of upfront costs and a lot of end cost because you're transitioning someone onto hospice and then you're transitioning them onto death, which might need, you know, higher pain medications. And so that the in-between is where um, really good hospices can break even and and take care of individuals um, facing end of life. And when they're back to back in the short length of stay, if they only stay, you know, seven days, there's not a lot of time to recoup that cost. But Let's talk a little bit about, you know, just the effects of the families are not better prepared and the patient possibly with pain management. Um, there's just so many things. And, and that's where I really encourage people to get hospice early. Um, you you will definitely benefit from the care. These people that I met yesterday in Connecticut, they are in it because of the patients and families, and they want to connect and know you guys and care for you guys and journey with you guys, which is some of these people just, uh, some of them are really scored on my heart for sure. Um, thanks for, and we'll definitely get into kind of hospice and what what's the difference between hospice and palliative. I think sometimes the community both sees them as both equaling death. And, and even though that's part of it, it's not all of it. Um, and I, I say this, hospice has nothing to do with death. We have a lot to do with living. Um, and and palliative is different, but somewhat the same. So I do think we need to come back and, and really dive into what's the difference between those two. So Michelle, you are part of this organization in a an advisory board of the hospice and palliative care committee what are the some of the what's your role and tell me about what are you um how are you advising the board of uh the Connecticut um association for uh healthcare at home when it comes to hospice and palliative care hi Kimberly. thank you um thank you for having me on for this discussion so so my name is Michelle Codiana, and as a provider member, I am um, of the association. I serve on both the board of directors, and I chair the hospice and palliative care committee. So that affords me the opportunity to work with um, industry leaders on our committee, and we're really um, passionate about um, bringing forth issues from a regulatory reimbursement and policy um, standpoint that affect hospice and how we deliver care. So as we're able to have those conversations at the committee level, I can then serve to, to bring that information back to the board of directors to keep them informed, um, to keep our group informed about some of the challenges and opportunities that we face here in our industry. Wow. That's a big responsibility. That's a big field too. Um, and, you know, it's so really cool to hear that that this organization has a committee just focused on hospice and palliative too. Um, what do you see some of the challenges 
for hospice uh, and palliative in the future? What do you have anything that's coming up that that is needs to be focused on? Sure. So I think that um, you know always a focus of ours is really breaking down the stereotypes, the misconceptions, and barriers um, to end of life care choices uh, for patients and families that impact quality of life. And that can be from anywhere from having conversations about end-of-life care up through uh, the regulatory environment that really um, drives how we're able to deliver care to the beneficiaries. And so, um, you know, on the horizon are, um, you know, the hospice benefit and how that may evolve over time, uh, how palliative care and palliative care being served out in the community can be um a collaborative environment for us so that we can continue to um, evolve in how we're able to spread the message on, on the care that we can deliver through the hospice benefit. That's, that's great. And Tracy, why don't we use this time right now to, what is the difference between hospice and palliative care in your opinion? So I I think a couple of things. Um, One thing that I want to call out as I'm explaining this, is that our committee that Michelle is the chair of in the last several years have worked has worked really hard in defining palliative care and hospice. And we have a flyer that's available to the public on our website, cthealthcareathome.org, that talks specifically about the similarities and the differences between palliative care and hospice so that we can help the public as well as the providers understand it a little bit better. So palliative care and hospice care are the same in the sense that they are a team approach, a holistic approach to a disease process, really focusing on not just the physical symptom management issues that someone faces with a serious illness, but also looking at the psychosocial, emotional, spiritual assistance that's that's needed and support. Um, Palliative care really should be given very early on in a serious illness. When somebody, I'll give an example of a cancer patient, when somebody starts with the diagnosis of cancer, whatever type it may be, and and the doctor is talking about the treatment plan of giving them chemotherapy and radiation, which we all know comes with significant side effects, and it also comes with um, a, a big um, a big shock to the person. And, and how they can deal with it and how the family can help them deal with it. Palliative care is that team approach that should be offered then when that serious illness develops and to help the person and their family know how to cope with it and have quality of life, not just symptom management, but quality of life while they're going through significant treatment. So you're getting the team approach while the person is still being treated for the disease. And then as the person's serious illness advances um, to a, a more um, advanced stage where the person may be uh, going into terminal stages, then it's a good time to get on the hospice. The hospice benefit was created back in 1974, and in Connecticut um, was uh, the first hospice uh, was established in 1974 at uh, Connecticut Hospice in Brantford. Um, but it was established through Medicare as a benefit for the terminally ill who had a prognosis of six months or less as determined by two physicians. So it really takes two physicians to discuss it, look at the symptoms, the um, 
the trajectory of the illness that that person is is uh, displaying and to determine that a prognosis of six months or less seems appropriate, then that person truly qualifies for the full hospice benefit, which again is a team of uh, providers. It would be a nurse, a social worker, the doctor would lead um, the team, uh, spiritual counselor, volunteers are really big in hospice to help the family um, and the patient coping. And then the focus really um, remains quality of life, but perhaps it's helping the family and the, the patient understand what to expect as the terminal illness continues on through the expectation that it will be ending soon. And the, the real value of hospice beyond being able to care for that patient and family in their final days, weeks, or months is afterwards when that patient does pass away, the, uh, there's a bereavement support system in place for 13 months for all of the loved ones involved in that person's, the, that passed away in that person's life. So palliative is very early on in the serious illness and hospice should be for six months uh, prognosis or less. And it also comes with a bereavement support uh, period for 13 months after the death of the person. Um, I think what's happened in the United States and very specifically in Connecticut with our short length of stay is that hospice is referred so late in the illness that I call it last minute hospice referral many times that, that our communities look at hospice almost as the definition of imminent death. Oh, you're putting me on hospice. I'm going to die tomorrow versus sometimes the doctor may institute or, or introduce, I should say palliative care when he really should be introducing hospice. And so the community gets very confused. They think palliative care is at end of life when it should be coming much sooner. And then hospice is, okay, now I'm really going. <laughs> you know, I will say this. I know, and maybe it's because of my 17 years um, working in this industry, I want uh, more than six months of hospice. Um, not for only me facing, you know, one day, I'm assuming that I will have a serious illness. You know, it's, it's likely that I want, I want the full benefit that I've paid into. Um, you know, people don't realize that this is a benefit that you've paid into all of your life. And it is such a support for families and patients. Um, and I loved, you know, you had a speaker yesterday, a doctor from New Hampshire, and she really put it into uh, simple language about, hey, you know, when you when a house is on fire, um, we hospice didn't cause the fire. We're here to help you. Um, and it was really a cool analogy. Um, tell me her name again. Her name is Dr. Susanna Makowski. And she is a board-certified hospice and palliative care physician who uh, was trained in San Diego uh, hospice initially and then came to, uh, came to the Northeast and started working in Massachusetts to build the palliative program at, at UMass Medical. And then she was uh, recruited up to Exeter, New Hampshire to build their palliative care program. And she's done some phenomenal work. I think some of the things that she really put into perspective yesterday, um, one thing about palliative care, she said people confuse palliative care and hospice all the time. I'll give you an analogy to help people understand it better. I have a four-year-old daughter, and sometimes she hurts herself. And I give 
her boo-boo a kiss. That's palliative care. I'm helping her feel supported and loved and feel that there's, there's someone there with her to go through her pain. That's palliative care. And then the other piece about the, the fire department, um, which I found really interesting, she said, uh, here's the analogy that people don't get regarding hospice. They think it is, come in and put the fire out at the last minute. Stop the fire. And really, the fire department shows up at the house, and you, you can't stop the fire when it's so late, when it's so out of control. Just like hospice, when you send somebody to hospice so late in the disease process, it's really hard to juggle all the symptoms and what the family is going through. They may not be prepared for the death, just like you're not prepared for a major fire. But if you get the fire department in earlier, you can control it a lot better, just as you can control symptoms and you can help families um, cope and deal with the, the um, projected loss of a loved one. Yeah, it, that was amazing. Um, now, Michelle, you being on this committee that's, you know, bringing information to the board, um, you guys, I'm sure, have initiatives. And some of I would like to talk about some of these initiatives. And I rem, I recall that one was to improve earlier conversations, um, some some things about advanced care planning and referrals to palliative care and hospice. I mean, what are some of those initiatives um, and objectives around that. How are you guys tackling that as an organization to help and support the other hospices um, in the state of Connecticut? Sure. So um, part of our committee work is really, um, you know, taking a look at, again, what are the, you know, state and federal reg- regulations that are impacting what we do and how we can partner with um, statewide groups to really um, collaborate on, on a few different things, um, how we're coordinating care, um, how we are affording people access to hospice, and then um, once they're on hospice, how we're also collaborating to um, ensure that the um, the wishes of the patients and families are being adhered to. So, for example, um, and actually Tracy works on the committee and, and she can speak more to it, um, there is a collaboration going on where we're working with our EMS providers so that um, they can be informed as to when patients are on hospice so that they're getting the appropriate treatment and um, not aggressive treatment. I don't know, Tracy, if you want to chime in on that. Yeah, we're actually on several statewide groups, and I think that um, having the committee as the the conduit between the statewide groups and just to be able to digest what's going on at the state level so that we can help our providers. Um, So one state group that she mentions is EMS, or Emergency Medical Services. Um, There's a big rise in the country in um, something called mobile integrated health care, and where they're getting involved with hospice providers is many times when, when a family um, agrees to uh, put their loved one with, with their loved one on um, hospice, some family members may, um, may end up panicking at times. You know, in the middle of the night when we're not sure what to do, we remember the hospice told us to do something, but we can't remember right now what we're supposed to do. So their natural reaction is to call 911 which activates the EMS providers. And so we're trying to partner with those providers 
to have, you know, the list of hospice providers available, the list of hospice patients available to them. So if they do call, they can recognize that they're a hospice patient and start talking to them and at the same time have their dispatch calling the hospice so that we can try to avoid that person going to the hospital where they really didn't want to go and try to manage their symptoms. And it's kind of, it's a partnership in trying to engage the community. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. COPD is the worst. When you can't breathe and you can't remember who to call, it is easy 911 that has been installed in all of us since we were young kids. So it it's really great that you are partnering because the the major the major point we tr- we're trying to make right now is that these individuals don't want to go back to the hospital, but sometimes fear paralyzes us and then we are just reactive. And so when the rescue workers EMS team gets there, they can kind of help with some symptoms or even dispatch the, uh, the hospice nurse and, and avoid all of this other um, unnecessary things that people are trying to stay away from. Um, so I think that's a great idea. Um, gosh, I really, that's exciting to hear. Um, really exciting. And I think one of the things that is so difficult in Connecticut with, with us getting our, our patients on hospice so late is that, you know, you go into the home and you try to meet as many of the, the family and friends that, that are part of that person's life as quickly as possible, but you really don't know what, you know, what the family unit is. Is it strong? Does it have struggles? Um, are there friends that pop in and out and some of them are good influences? Some of them maybe, you know, struggle a little bit with how to manage, uh, what's going on. And when you don't get in there early enough to get to know all of those nuances, it's very easy for you to miss a family member that, that might panic and call 911. So it's, that's all the more important for us to get in as early as possible so that we can help work through some of those um, family and friend situations to try to help prepare them a little better. You're right. You're right. And I, I tell you, I, I, I tell this a lot, um, especially on this tour, the Live Well, Die Well tour. You know, I'm sitting around campfires and trying to have these conversations about, I want hospice. And, you know, when you when you talk about, you know, I'm healthy, I know this, and I want to make sure all my providers who tell, take care of me know that. Because you just never know when something happens. Um, now, can I change my mind? Of course. It's not like just because you've put this in your advanced care planning or directives that those directives can change at any time. Tracy, talk to me a little bit more about some other initiatives that you're trying to address on a state level. So there's a few things that we've done at the committee level that I think impact the whole state. I think throughout the country, um, we're very well aware of the opioid crisis. And, you know, hospice uh, providers deal with opioids all the time and trying to manage a, a person's uh, pain. Um, so what we did, um, you know, we, we've seen an uptick in our state of uh, drug diversion, which means, you know, the medications that are in the home sometimes are being diverted by um, other family members or people coming into the home or sometimes, unfortunately, even by perhaps one of the hospice providers. You just, you know, you have to really be very careful about um, trying to protect that person's property, their medications, um, with, the opioid, with the opioid crisis. So what we did was we put together an entire toolkit for our providers that helped them 
through assessing the risk in the home for drug diversion, putting um, uh, instructions in place, uh, better safety uh, mechanisms in place for the medications, just trying to identify a higher risk situation versus something else. And then also doing a lot more training with your own staff and oversight to make sure that, that you've got those checks and balances in place so that you can minimize drug diversion. So that's one big thing that we did. Another big thing that we did, um, you know, I, I mentioned the palliative care versus hospice care uh, differences uh, and fact sheet. That's on our website. Um, there's a lot of misunderstanding throughout um, the country, but again in Connecticut, about the various levels of hospice care. And there are four levels of hospice care, which many people don't understand. So we put together a fact sheet on that that's also available for the public on our website. And then um, two years ago, we um, worked very hard to standardize. We have a mandate by both the federal and the state government um, to standardize uh, the orientation to hospice philosophy and care that's required in all nursing home settings that, that offer hospice care. Um, the typical uh, scenario is there could be a, a skilled nursing facility, a nursing home, um, and a patient may be in that uh, nursing home and starting to um, move into the more terminal stages of a disease. And that staff doesn't have their own hospice within the uh, facility. They actually contract with one of our specialty hospice providers in, in the state to come into their facility and help uh, coordinate the care, oversee the care and the, and the plan with that uh, skilled nursing facility. So we have a requirement to ensure that the skilled nursing facility staff has a baseline level knowledge of the hospice philosophy, the levels of care, different levels of symptom management, um, the responsibilities of the hospice versus the nursing facility, so we put together an entire training program with a recorded webinar, wow. a test, instructions, so that everybody that provides that level of care in Connecticut can get the same training instead of, you know, one hospice will train this way and another hospice will train this way. Um, just trying to put some standardization to it. And then the last piece that I just wanted to mention quickly is that we're partnering with um, our other state um, healthcare associations, the hospitals and the nursing home associations, um, on um, advancing conversations in the community and amongst uh, our provider uh, practitioners. So partnering together on the bigger level, not just at our um, committee level, trying to really move forward on having conversations earlier in, uh, in the serious illness. Wow. So you guys have your hands very full because you, you have the entire state. Um, but I think you, I, I think what you said, um, number one is how do we consistently train people to, um, so it's the same language, it's the same training. So across, um, the entire state, um, they're getting the same education, which is, which is extremely important. Um, Michelle, tell me a little bit of why was it so important for you to be a part of this organization and play a role, especially with the, the Hospice and Palliative uh, Care Committee? Yeah, so thank you for asking. That's a great question. I think that um, 
for me personally, it was really to be part of, of a group that is really championing, championing for hospice and, um, you know, allowing us collectively to develop those grassroots strategies for hospice-specific hospice-specific issues um, so that we can um, have a united voice and the ability to influence and impact um, the future of hospice care for patients and families. Uh, Wow. They're very lucky to have someone like you. Now, Tracy, you did mention in the beginning that you are a membership-based organization. How can someone or an organization uh, or can some one person join your organization or is it more of a, you know, who can join this, um, your organization and, and be a part of this movement? So thanks for asking that. Again, on our website, uh, cthealthcareathome.org, there's a member section that that um, has an option to become a member, and we have multiple levels of membership. Um, we have our uh, licensed and certified, that's licensed by the state of Connecticut, certified by Medicare, home health providers and hospice providers. So they're one level of membership. And um, we have affiliate members, which are the non-licensed um, providers of home care. You might think of the homemaker companion agencies, private duty companies who, you know, many times people need additional help in their home beyond what the home health and hospice providers can, can offer on an intermittent basis, but more continuous care at home in order to keep them at home, which is, you know, most of the time that's always the goal, keep people in their in their own home because they don't want to you know, they don't want to leave a place that has meant so much to them over their lifetime. Um, And it also has proven to be the most cost-effective setting for care. So the affiliate membership would be that level. And then we have associate memberships, which are predominantly our consultants, um, legal, uh, accounting, um, healthcare consultants, uh, HR, um, all different uh, per, all different types of consultants. Yesterday, you saw them as our exhibitors at the conference. We we had a pharmacy consultant. We had a, um, a an essential oils uh, company who worked very closely with some of our hospice providers. Uh, medical supply companies. Those those are members. And then we have um, we have another level that's called an individual membership. So if you wish to join our association, Kimberly Paul, you can certainly join our association as, as an individual member, as long as you're not attached to one of the other providers who are already members, then you can join our, our association as an individual. Many times we'll have people who are, um, maybe they're in transition between jobs, maybe they've retired and they want to stay, stay connected to the association and make sure that they stay on top of the initiatives. So those would be our individual members. Oh, wow. And and what, and what they are all different price based on what you plan to get or receive based on the levels, correct? Yes. Our primary, our primary focus based on the dues um, structure is always for our licensed and certified members, our home health and hospice provider members. We spend most of our time um, helping them through our networking, education, and, and legislative advocacy. Not just legislative, but legislative and regulatory advocacy. Um, one of my roles is to act as a liaison um, between our members and um, our state 
regulatory uh, agencies, whether it be the, the department that runs the Medicaid program or our Department of Public Health that oversees all of our, um, our survey processes of our, our agencies. Um, it also is with our state, our uh, federal level um, with Medicare and with our, um, our, our regional Medicare offices. And we also do a lot of work with our national organizations. It's a great way to stay on top of things. We're members. Our association is a member of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, also known as NAC. And we're also members of NHPCO, which is the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. And I, I play roles on each of those organizations, um, you know, various committees and councils to try to make sure that we're as current with the federal information as we can be so that I can bring that back to our state and ensure that our all of our committee level work and our board level work is um, focusing their, their priorities appropriately. That's amazing. And, and you know what, it is an ever-changing field right now, and, and it's really important to have organizations like yours supporting those at who are actually in the field doing the work. Um, you, I, I know for a fact you guys take a lot of stress and burden off these people who are in the homes working with patients and families, and I, I salute you for that. And also, I just wanted to say to you and Michelle, thank you for your time, but thank you for including me in such a wonderful uh, summit yesterday. It was just an amazing experience to connect with your community of providers as well as, you know, your vendors were so just so passionate about what you guys are doing. And it was really wonderful to be a part and included in this event. And, and I really do appreciate what you guys are doing for the state of Connecticut and, and keep up the great work. Thanks, Kimberly. I'd like to thank you. Um, I, I did want to say that, uh, I also looked quickly at the evaluations, and I have to tell you that you you knocked it out of the park with your uh, brief <laughs> presentation that you offered yesterday. They, our, our attendees absolutely loved your message. It was so passionate, and you know I know our hospice providers have have huge hearts, but the message that you gave just really hit home to them, and, and they loved oh, well. you. Thank you. Well, no, Can I that, that can really. Thank you for sharing with us your Live Well, Die Well tour and for really, you know, you really brought a passion and um, your advocacy for, for patients, families, and also for caregivers and the providers. And so, you know, sharing stories and, and talking about testimonials and really energizing our group because the work that we do is really hard. And um, so I think you did an amazing job and I, and I, I'm very proud to have had you a part of our, our um, conference. And, and so please continue on with this amazing work. And again, thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. And I, I will say this, I do it for people like you. And, you know, I'm a, I feel all alone out here sometimes going state to state in this crazy tour of mine. But when I come to a conference like this, I walk away inspired to keep doing it because I see the faces that I still see the faces and hear the stories from the everyone in those that shared with me yesterday. And, and I just am so overwhelmed and grateful just to be included in a part of this movement. Um, and absolutely where I want to enhance services um, and environments for staff, especially, but also with patients and families. And, and you guys are doing that. And I, I'm just happy in, to be included in it. So thank you so much. And, and if there's anything ever that I can do to support your state, 
your organization. All you have to do, Tracy, Michelle, just you have my cell phone number. Just call me. Oh, thank you very much, Kimberly. It's been a joy. Thank you, Kimberly. All right. Thank you so Yeah, thank you so much for your time today and keep doing the great work. And I look forward to seeing what Connecticut is going to be doing in the the coming years. Um, I'm really happy they have an organization like you. And if you are out there and want to support an organization and you're an individual, go to their website. Tracy, give that to us one more time. It's www.cthealthcareathome, all one word, cthealthcareathome. And if you're out there also and you are just wanting to donate some money, this state organization does a lot for several, several hundred possibly hospices and palliative care professionals. So it's really important that we, me included, to support these individuals to provide this continued education for their state when it comes to hospice and palliative care. It's a lot of information and a lot of things going on right now. So it's really important that we help take that burden off those uh, people at the bedside. And Tracy, your organization is doing it because you have such great people like Michelle on your board. And I look forward to growing our friendship and hopefully coming back to Connecticut and, and being with you guys again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.